Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities. It's also made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Brevard County Board of Commissioners through the Brevard Cultural Alliance, Incorporated. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on this week's program, John and Mary Lou Missile discuss their book, This Torn Land, Poetry of the Second Seminole War. This project, you started to get attached to all the writers in there, because you could see how this war was affecting them. And we'll visit the historic African-American churches at Hannibal Square in West Winter Park. The co-founders of Winter Park built Hannibal Square for the black employees. Those employees built that community. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. Husband and wife team John and Mary Lou Missile are active members of the Seminole Wars Foundation, which preserves sites from the three Seminole Wars, sponsors educational programs, and publishes books about the conflicts. They are co-authors of the book, The Seminole Wars, America's Longest Indian Conflict, and editors of the book, This Miserable Pride of a Soldier, The Letters and Journals of Colonel William S. Foster in the Second Seminole War. Their forthcoming book, Hollow Victory, a novel of the Second Seminole War, is the missile's first work of fiction based on historical fact. They compiled and edited their latest book, This Torn Land, Poetry of the Second Seminole War, using material gathered while working on their other projects. Mary Lou Missile. I actually came across the poetry quite by accident. Uh, I was doing research on other aspects of the Seminole Wars, and occasionally I would come across a poem that was published in either uh, the Army-Navy Chronicles or newspapers and periodicals of the time. Um, and I can just remember when I found one of them that it was so unusual. And so I began to make copies of them and store them away just because I thought it was unusual. And it wasn't until years later that I was uh, going through my research that um, I found them and I thought, boy, this is really interesting. It could make a good project. Maybe I could, you know, do a pamphlet. After adding some historical context and assembling the collected poems, the Missiles realized that their pamphlet had grown into a book. As John Missile points out, these poems provide an understanding of the Second Seminole War that a traditional historical work might not. They allow us to see the hearts of the people. You know, when we normally study history, it's a lot of times dates and places. You really don't get a feel for how the people really were affected by these. In poetry, they're pouring their hearts out. And it's all very romantic poetry, but it really hits home sometimes. Our second book was This Miserable Pride of a Soldier, which was the letters and journals of Colonel William S. Foster, one of the senior officers who fought in most of the major battles of the Second Seminole War. And that was kind of a biography sort of project where you really got to know the person you were writing about because we had his personal letters, letters to his wife, and you get almost attached to the person while you're doing it. This project, you started to get attached to all the writers in there 
because you could see how this war was affecting them. Many of the poems collected in this torn land, poetry of the Second Seminole War, were written by unknown soldiers and other anonymous observers, while others were penned by poets such as George W. Patton, Arthur T. Lee, and Walt Whitman. At the 2010 annual meeting of the Florida Historical Society held at the Casa Monica Hotel in St. Augustine, John and Mary Lou Missile gave a presentation on their book, This Torn Land, Poetry of the Second Seminole War. The first set of poems were written in reaction to the annihilation of the command of Major Francis Date on December 28, 1835. Date had been dispatched from Tampa Bay to Fort King at Ocala with 107 men. Only two survived the ambush. Although we now see the event as a battle, Americans at the time clearly perceived it as a massacre. The idea that the United States Army could be defeated by Native Americans in a fair fight was almost unthinkable. Some could not believe that God would let such a thing happen. Where were thy bolts, great God of heaven? Why flew they not to save the brave? Were not thine armed angels given the task that little band to save? The defeat was a shock to the nation and Dade and his slaughtered men were transformed into heroes and martyrs. Now furious grew the desperate fight, and well each soldier made his stand. Oh, t'was a great and glorious sight, the prowess of that little band. There was also the inevitable grief. It was a small army, only around 7,000 men, and the loss of such a large force touched nearly everyone. The grief also extended to the family and friends of the fallen. The following lines come from a piece written by a friend of Mrs. Dade, who was aware that no words, no matter how eloquent, could ease her friend's grief. No slab nor pillar marks the spot where the hero's dust is sleeping. Yet a whole nation in their hearts the memory of his fate is keeping. The second group of poems reveals the depth of nationalistic pride that many Americans felt in their response to news of the war. As word of the conflict spread across the nation, patriotic hearts answered the call to arms. Within the bordering southern states, volunteer militia companies rushed to the aid of a defenseless neighbor. A sister land sends forth a wailing cry, and to that call those gallant hearts reply. They tear themselves from those they love at last. All private gain by them aside is cast. Yet many who had experienced the War of 1812 understood how that initial enthusiasm could quickly turn to disappointment. How lovely is war in the birth of its pride, its glitter untarnished, its spirit untried, ere the breath of the battle has shaken its plume or the dust of the triumph has sullied its bloom. Those who understood the true nature of war tried to warn their fellow Americans what the ultimate cost would be. War, 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 thousands of people to lend. War, 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 millions of treasure to spend. Ne'er did the wealth of a nation thus flow to spread through its homes desolation and woe. The poems also give us a glimpse into some of the less thought of aspects of war. One particularly informative piece concerns the express riders 
who would carry the mail between the various posts, very often through hostile territory and always under the threat of ambush. In the poem's introduction, the author tells us that despite the danger, there was no shortage of volunteers for this hazardous duty. He not only tells us of the spirit of these men, but of the importance of their mission, not so much to the army, but to the people who received the mail they carried. And I oftentimes think as I onward go of the sources I carry of joy and woe. Of thousands I carry the joys and fear, though I never shall see their faces or tears. The author then tells us of a soldier who receives a letter sealed with black sealing wax, an indication that someone at home has died. One single sentence may bring despair, his wife, his sons, and his daughters fair. He sees them all as he saw them last, yet knows that one from the earth has passed. For the soldiers who fought in Florida, this was not a playground or a paradise. The summer heat and the torrential rains made life miserable, while the insects and diseases they carried were far more deadly than Seminole warriors. The frustrations these men experienced and their responses to them echo down through the ages, from the Roman legions to the men and women fighting today. For many soldiers, the only way to get through it all was with a sense of humor. To help ease the boredom and burdens, many soldiers turned to drink. Not all were helpless alcoholics. As millions do today, most just enjoyed a relaxing glass while socializing with their comrades. Come, soldiers, fill up, and let wine make amends for the toils we have suffered today. And deep from our hearts, let us pledge to old friends, whom we cherish, though far, far away. Time scatters more sorrow than joy from his wing, but with wine we may laugh at his flight. So fill up. Whatever the future may bring, let joy gild the goblet tonight. One constant irritant among officers was the matter of brevet rank. These were promotions handed out by a penny-pinching Congress wherein the officer would receive the higher rank but not the corresponding raise in pay. Those who received the new rank felt they should be considered equal to other officers, while those who held the official rank felt brevets were more honorary than real. As one officer explained to a new recruit who was confused by the practice, You see yon turkey on the fence? That's turkey, Sam, in every sense. Yon turkey buzzard on the tree, he's brevet turkey, do you see? A turkey has some value, Sam. A buzzard isn't worth a damn. In the days before mechanized warfare, animals were a constant presence among the troops. One soldier wrote a lengthy verse in praise of his dog and commented that the animal was a better soldier than some of his comrades. You never brag what you will do and trumpet forth your might, nor minded you the balls that flew at, Oc at Okeechobee fight. Would some I know this lesson learn, they'd serve their country better, nor be such asses in the field and heroes in a letter. Other soldiers used their wit to voice their frustrations about the lack of progress in the war, or, as in the following case, the lack of action. Ah, I'm sick of this war of all talk and no fighting. For thirteen long months did I serve in the Everglade, neck deep in debt and full waist deep in mud. Or dirty lagoon, and through streams I could never wade, battling it bravely, but spilling no blood. 
The longer the war went on, the less likely it seemed that it would ever end. For many, every rumor of peace brought an eventual disappointment, as one soldier put it. Ever since the creation, by the best calculation, the Florida war has been raging, and tis our expectation that the last conflagration will find us this same contest waging. And yet tis not an endless war, as fa facts will plainly show, having been ended 40 times in 20 months or so. It is somewhat informative to note that more poems were written in response to the death of Osceola than to the killing of Major Dade and his hundred men. In 1837, General Thomas Jessup, the war's commander, began the practice of taking Seminoles captive while they negotiated under a flag of truce. The most famous of these prisoners was Osceola, the fiery young warrior who had best articulated the Seminoles' refusal to be forced from their homes. Several months later, Osceola died in captivity, becoming a martyr for the Indian cause and an inspiration for those who opposed the war. Poems about Osceola generally fell into two broad categories. Some dealt with his prowess as a warrior and leader, while others focused on his tragic fate. One author covered both in a single poem, dividing it into two parts. The battle storm is over. The hammock is reeking red. But who looks there with victorious smile on the heaps of the pale-faced dead? Tis a tribe's young warrior chief, the deeds of whose vengeful fame have filled the ear of a mighty land with the terror of his name. In a dark dungeon room is stretched a mighty form, and it shakes in its dreadful agony like a leaf in the autumn storm. Tis a proud victorious chief who smile mid the pale face slain. Tis the eagle that swept through the whizzing blast and bathed in the crimson rain. This is also the one section of the book where military authors are conspicuously absent. The writers in this section had no doubt never met Osceola and probably had little idea of the true situation in Florida. Yet they still managed to grasp the role that Osceola provided in giving inspiration to his followers. Thine is the task, and thine is the soul too proud to be the kneeling pilgrim at any shrine save that of the brave and free. On while the might is ours. Chief of our warrior band, for happy hours in the clime of flowers, or a home in the spirit land. Osceola may have been a prisoner in Charleston, but he was also a celebrity. He was even taken to see a play, an event which drew a sellout crowd. One of the spectators recorded his impressions of the famous warrior. The softest strains of music fell unheard, and every sound seemed lost upon his ear. While songs that spoke of love in every word, nor made him sigh, nor smile, nor drop a tear. For his wild thoughts, like some unfettered bird, flew swift as lightning to that home so dear, where his undaunted heart still longed to go, to raise the savage yell and fight the treacherous foe. Perhaps fittingly, the largest section of the book is devoted to those who died in the conflict those who paid the ultimate cost of war. A number of poems focus on the fact that those who died in the field or on the path between posts were often buried in an unmarked grave on the spot where they expired, not in a cemetery. 
The following are the opening lines from several different works, yet they all share a similar sentiment. Leave me where the breezes play, mid palm trees waving high, and flowers exert such pleasing sway that death himself aside might stray, forgetting where I lie. Weary and weak and pale, he sank on the lengthened route, and they paused a while in the lowly vale where his fevered frame gave out. They sleep alone in their quiet home. Theirs is a deep and mournful grave, a lowly mound of scattered ground where the grass will wildly wave. Dead in the wilderness, dead. No one to know how his brave spirit fled, thinking of loved ones, grasping for breath. Oh, for a drop of cold water or death. Dig my grave where the green boughs wave and the gentle doves are sighing in some lonely spot where care comes not, for I know that I am dying. Not all the army's fatalities were soldiers. Officers were often accompanied by their wives, and children were occasionally born at the frontier outpost where they were stationed. One poem tells of an infant who died while his family was traveling between posts and was buried by the roadside. I lay thee here, my sinless one. I put thee down to rest, but not upon thine eider bed, nor on thy mother's breast. Within this little grave they've scooped, far in the forest wild. I lay thee here, my precious one. I leave thee here, my child. With families so close, it was occasionally the sad responsibility of fellow officers to break the news of a friend's death to his widow. The following lines were written for the wife of Lieutenant Colonel Ramsey Thompson, who was killed at the Battle of Okeechobee. Thou were not there to see him die upon the warring heath. Thou were not there to close his eye and watch his parting breath to feel his fingers quivering touch, his last, last look to see. And he whom thou didst love so much was buried far from thee. Not all soldiers died in battle. In fact, 90% of the army's losses were due to disease. One officer lamented that a friend who succumbed to fever would be forgotten, while those who died in battle would be remembered as heroes. Oh, Florida, no human tongue can tell how vast the treasures that thy soil has cost. Not in treasure, but in those who fell upon thy plains in battles won and lost. Whilst others, victims of a fierce disease, in deep seclusion, scarce remembered, lay to rot, forgotten like the fallen trees. There were, of course, many civilian deaths. And one soldier tells of the discovery of a family murdered near the Santa Fe River. In this poem, as in many others, we are struck by the author's ability to make the most horrendous scene sound hauntingly lovely. I saw them by the moonlight ray, as side by side in death they lay. Upon the mother's pulseless breast, chill slept the babe in dreamless rest. While o'er the pillow where it laid, slow oozed the stream the knife had made. 
the final section of the book, deals with the defiant spirit of the Seminoles. As the wasteful war continued with no end in sight, many Americans began to question the necessity and morality of driving the Seminoles from their homes. Their parents had lived through the revolution and they understood what it meant to fight for freedom. They also understood the attitude that someone must have if they are engaged in what appears to be a hopeless struggle. Fire, famine, and slaughter have wasted our band. Our lifeblood, like water, has moistened the land. But truly, our rifles, the bullet will speed, while an arm can be lifted, one bosom can bleed. The people who best understood the Seminole spirit and their willingness to fight for their homes and their way of life were the same men the government had sent to remove the Indians. One officer looked into the heart of a Seminole and saw only righteous hatred. I loathe thee with my bosom. I scorn thee with mine eye. And I'll taunt ye with my latest breath and fight ye till I die. I ne'er will ask ye quarter, and I ne'er will be your slave, but I'll swim the sea of slaughter till I sink beneath its wave. Many soldiers felt shame for what they were being called upon to do, yet few could openly speak against the war without fear of damaging their careers. They could, however, create literature that put those thoughts in someone else's mind. In this final piece, the author imagines the words of a dying Seminole warrior, surrounded by his pursuers and knowing his scalp will be taken as a trophy. Thine is the victor's trophy now. Come, tear it from my dying brow. Twill swell your fame where you roam. And when you reach your mountain home, there, hang it on your gilded wall. Twill make your coward children brave. Boast to them how ye slew us all, and made our land one mighty grave. See how the living gloss hath fled. So may the luster of your fame grow dim when Indian wrongs are told. And may your women cry out, Shame! John and Mary Lou Missile compiled and edited the book, This Torn Land, Poetry of the Second Seminole War. They gave a presentation on the book at the 2010 annual meeting of the Florida Historical Society at the Casa Monica Hotel in St. Augustine. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org, join us on Facebook at Florida Historical Society, and follow us on Twitter at MyFLHistory. One day as I was walking, they told me now, down the lonesome road, while the Spirit spoke unto me, and it filled my heart with joy, 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 such child, I'm going to win the lead. They told me now, don't forget to pray. Singing by the hand, I'm in his The church is the cornerstone of many African American communities. Bill Dudley reports on a project to preserve the history of the churches in one Florida town where residents and institutions are being replaced by gentrification. All of this used to be property owned by black people, and when it was first developed, all of this was black. On an afternoon in spring, Dr. Rebecca McLeod leads a group along New England Avenue in West Winter Park, 
They pass the fashionable cafes and boutiques that have sprung up here in the last few years in the once black neighborhood known as Hannibal Square. As Hannibal Square is, is going through gentrification, it's getting smaller and smaller and smaller, which for me is very sad. Founded in the 1880s by two northern businessmen, Oliver Chapman and Loring Chase, as an upscale development on the shores of Lake Osceola, the town of Winter Park was really two towns separated by railroad tracks. West Winter Park, or Hannibal Square, named after the African general, was laid out as a service community with homes for the men and women who worked as maids, butlers, nannies, construction workers, or orange pickers. The co-founders of Winter Park built Hannibal Square for the black employees. Those employees built that community. They built a school, they had a community center, they had a newspaper, and they built at least the six early churches. Dr. Ruth Edwards is coordinator of the Lifelong Learning Institute at the Winter Park Public Library. Winter Park was a sundown town. Black folks could be over here when they were working. But after they got off work and before the sun went down, they need to get back across the tracks. Of the 12 African-American churches whose buildings survive today, several date from the late 1800s. The men were working the daytime on the other side of the track, and at night they would come over and then they would build a church, you know, by kerosene lamp, and they would build their churches. And they built the churches basically from scraps, you know, from scrap wood, from whatever they could find. There was one story that a mill was torn down, and then the men went over, and got the lumber, and they built a church from that used lumber. You go into some of the older churches, and there are hand-carved pews. In 1935, more churches were built with money left by a wealthy white attorney in town. Others are more modern still. The churches range in size from the largest Patmos Chapel Seventh-day Adventist, with nearly a 1,000 members and a modern building, to the tiny Prayer Mission Church of God in Christ, with 20 in the congregation, meeting in a small renovated house. Only one church, Mount Moriah Missionary Baptist, has stained glass windows. All of the history of Hannibal Square lives in those churches. It is particularly the history of who established it, who came, who the people were, who the early settlers were, it's in the churches. I used to attend church here in Winter Park, and I would drive into Winter Park every Sunday, and I would see a building that was there the previous Sunday. It was gone. And I noticed that uh, people were moving out and new buildings were going up, and I just started wondering what was happening to the people. And then when one of the churches closed, that bothered me a lot, you know, for a church to close, because I wondered what happened to the people who attended that church. A few years ago, McLeod who directs the Upward Bound program at the University of Central Florida, got a grant from a local organization to document the history of Hannibal Square's churches. After collecting oral histories from older residents and sifting through hundreds of old photographs and memorabilia, she's published two books. With the results of her research on today, she leads walking tours of the churches and their neighborhoods for both black and white Winter Park residents who may not be aware of the history under their noses. It's such a wonderful public service to do this for people, to expose us to these all this rich history that otherwise we never would have known about. It's long overdue. It should have been done years ago. James T. Blunt is senior pastor of Ward Chapel AME Church, whose present sanctuary is one of those built in 1935. Every church in this area came about because of the struggle of African-American people. They knew they needed a place to worship. They knew they needed a God. They could not go to the churches where they worked 
for the people they worked for, so they needed their own. When Rebecca McLeod began her survey, there were 12 churches in Hannibal Square. Now there are only 10. Those that remain sit on land that's becoming increasingly valuable to developers, intent on changing the face of the neighborhood. I think for me, the, the most important piece is that if the churches go, the history goes. And those churches really do hold the history of that community. It's not a disposable community, even though that may be the perception by some folks who come and don't understand the history of how this town evolved. I'm Bill Dudley. With funding from the Florida Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, this report was produced by the Florida Humanities Council. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us again next week, and until then, visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org, join us on Facebook at Florida Historical Society, and follow us on Twitter at MyFLHistory. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities. It's also made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Brevard County Board of Commissioners through the Brevard Cultural Alliance, Incorporated.